welcome back to SIGGRAPH Spotlight. In this episode, we reflect on the past and how it's led us to the bold and imaginative future ahead through the lens of NASA. SIGGRAPH 2023 Electronic Theater Director Kalina Borkevich sits down with Jim Blinn and Dan Goods to hear more about their experiences with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, what pop culture gets right about space travel and exploration, and what's on the horizon for space discovery in the future. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast or write a review. Take it away, Kalina. Hello, and welcome back to SIGGRAPH Spotlight. I'm Kalina Borkevich, SIGGRAPH 2023 Electronic Theater Director. Outside of SIGGRAPH, I'm the director of the Visualization Program Office and of the Advanced Visualization Lab at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Today, I am so excited to sit down with Jim Blinn and Dan Goods to discuss a topic that intersects a theme of SIGGRAPH 2023 and our professional interests. Reflecting on the past and how it's led us to the bold and imaginative future we have ahead of us through the lens of NASA. Jim and Dan are here to tell us more about this theme from their experiences with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, where we've been and what's on the horizon for space exploration and discovery in the future. Before we start our conversation, Jim and Dan, can you please introduce yourselves to our listeners and share your career background and any involvement with SIGGRAPH? Jim, let's start with you. Okay, well, I've been doing computer graphics stuff since about 1968, and I was a member of SIGGRAPH probably around 1969, 70, before they even had regular conferences. I went to several of the unofficial conferences, but I went to the first one in 1974, and I've been to all of them since through about 2009, and then kind of spotty after that, doing computer graphics stuff at University of Michigan and University of Utah, and then JPL, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Great. Thanks, Jim. Dan, how about you? Yeah, so uh, Dan Goods, and I've been at uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab for almost 20 years. It's about 18, 19, 20 years. And I started out in graphic design, being a graphic designer, and then I ended up getting to meet the director of uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab. And they sort of gave me six months to see if it makes sense for me to be there. And I've been there for a little while now. And so now I have an amazing team. We're called The Studio. There's something called The Design Lab, and we're one of the teams, one of the three teams under Design Lab. And we use a couple different phrases. One, we talk about helping people think through their thinking. And then we have another phrase that's sneaking up on learning. And so the range works from strategy and brainstorming and facilitation of ideation sessions to creating art pieces that go to public spaces or to museums that talk about what NASA does. That's fantastic. I can't wait wait to dive into learning more about those. So for a conversation, let's set the scene. Jim, you produced computer graphics animations at JPL for various space missions. For many people in the industry, this was their early exposure to computer graphics and scientific visualization. Can you tell us how you developed these animations for both JPL and the animated series you produced? Tell us about what techniques you used and kind of any stories about that. (laughs) Well, when I started out at JPL, I had been doing research in the University of Utah in texture mapping, among other things. But I'd always been interested in JPL. And when I graduated, I called up Ivan Sutherland at Caltech to see if I could join his department. But I said, I'd really want to go and hang out at JPL to see if I could find something to do out there. And he said, well, as it happened, there's uh, somebody at JPL who just had purchased a set of hardware identical to what you had at Utah. 
and he's looking for somebody to, to do something with interesting with it. So that was Bob Holzman, and I went out there and got things going there. And you have to understand, at the time, not too many people knew that computer animation, shaded animation, was even possible. And so it's not something anybody was really thinking about very much. So the project that I worked on was kind of under the table, as nobody knew really that I was doing it, except for a few people that I worked with. Charlie Colhase was a mission planner, and I got friendly with him. And he had actually done a line drawing animation of the Voyager flying by the various planets, as he did. He was the chief mission planner for Voyager. So I said, texture mapping, I know how to do. And the celestial dynamics, he knew how to do. And so this is perfect. I would uh, do a, a shaded image of what's going on as the things flew by Jupiter and Saturn and so forth. But as I say, it was kind of not requested by anybody. And so in a certain sense, that was good for me because there wasn't somebody standing over my shoulder saying, you know, when's it going to be done? What's going to be done? And if it happened, it was good. If it didn't happen, nobody would have known anyway. So we made this movie with some textures for Jupiter from the Earth-based photographs. We had an artist draw a few hypothetical textures of the uh, moons and used our PDP-11. Basically, the only tools I had were a Fortran compiler and a text editor. Everything else had to be kind of created from scratch. When I got there, I had basically 18 months between when I got there and when the flyby happened. And uh, it's one of the ultimate hard deadline, basically. If it didn't get done by 18 months, it was kind of <laughs> old news and boring. So got it going. And each unit of real frame took five to 10 minutes to render. So it was a two, three week rendering time for the first Forger movie and put a camera sitting on a tripod looking at the TV screen to record the thing one frame at a time. So we got this movie and, and it looked pretty cool. And we gave it to the public information office and they said, I don't know what to do with this. They just kind of threw it in the corner. The public information office was, you know, responsible for the liaison between JPL and the outside world. And they needed to be in control of what was sent out. They didn't want to have every random people in JPL sending out pictures or movies or something like that, because otherwise the news media would come and say, hey, we need a copy of that too. And they'd say, copy of what? We don't even know what you're talking about. So they were a little bit edgy about what to do with it. Turns out Charlie had a meeting with the head of NASA to brief him on what was going to happen and showed him the movie that we had made. And the head of NASA says, this is terrific. We'll make copies of this to send out to all the news media. So now we sent it out to the news media and, and the whole thing was born. What happened then is Voyager 1 happened and the Voyager 2 was coming up in six months. So they said, well, we need a new movie for Voyager 2. So I was able to use the pictures from Voyager 1 to generate real texture patterns for the Voyager 2 moons. And so that was the kind of the theme of each of the movies. Each one not only shows what the current spacecraft was going to see, but also kind of showed off some of the discoveries of the previous spacecraft. Voyager 1, Voyager 2, and then uh, going by Saturn, each movie was, you know, I was able to improve the, the modeling and so forth, getting the ring dynamics properly, and, and then showing some of the ring structures in the Voyager 2 movie that we discovered in Voyager 1 and so forth. So it was, it was a great happy time for me to, to be able to do all this. It was kind of a fulfillment of a lifetime dream. I bet. That sounds incredible. So you had 18 months to do the Voyager 1 video. How was the Voyager 2 and the future ones? Did it get easier over time or did the projects change over time? Well, the first one, we had to do everything, the camera processing and, and so forth. So we kind of knew how to do that. But each one was a little bit easier, but you know, I made it harder because I had to put more into it to do things differently. The computer we used was a PDP-11, 16-bit computer, and it had only 128K of memory. And the frame buffer was 512 by 480 pixels, 8 bits and so forth. So it was very crude by today's standards. 
and it took a lot of tricks in order to extract a reasonable looking picture out of it. But it fortunately was able to pull it off. So how have computer graphics and other techniques evolved over the last 50 years? Obviously, lots of changes. But as you've watched this evolve and change over your career, can you comment on that? There's a basic maximum in engineering called good, fast, and cheap. Pick any two. But what's happened with computer graphics is all three have gotten better. It's gotten good. We got lots of pixels now, thousands by thousands. We got full color, 32 bits and more per pixel. Things happen in real time now that used to take 10, 15, 20 minutes. And so life is even better than it used to be. And it keeps getting better. Hope so. (laughs) So what were NASA's goals and ambitions when each of you, both Dan and Jim, began your careers at JPL? What has since been achieved? I don't know. I can speak only for my experience, but JPL was interested in making flybys of the planets to see what they look like. (laughs) They were able to do that. And the goals of different parts of NASA are, of course, very different. But in addition to the science things there, they were also interested and became more and more interested in public information and getting the, the results out to the public in a way they can they can see it. And computer graphics, in fact, was you know one of the things that was promoted by this because not too many people knew it existed. When, when the Voyager 1 movie was made, a lot of people at home were saying, you know, where did this movie come from? And a lot of people said, well, it must have been a movie taken by the cameras on the Voyager 2 following along behind it, which maybe was a comment about how good it came. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's still a problem. I'm in the visualization field myself right now. And as things become more and more realistic, a lot of people aren't really realizing that what they're looking at are computer graphics and, and not the real thing. So that was a problem then, and it continues to be a problem now. Yeah, we can see what Dan has to say about this. <laughs> or even the opposite now is that people think that it's computer graphics when it's real. It's like, no, it's real. It's actually real. That is actually an issue because there are a lot of news reports you see of some sort of astronomical discovery that planets are on distant stars and so forth. And they have a nice, beautiful picture of a planet there that looks nice, but it was actually an artist's conception. And it is a, a tricky thing to be nice to label all the computer graphics as, you know, artist's conception or computer graphics and label the real ones as this is a real picture in some fashion so people can tell which one's which. Yeah. And that's getting harder and harder, <laughs> harder and harder to tell. <laughs> And there is a gray area too, right? A data visualization, for example, is kind of based on real data, but then there's artistic elements that go into it to make it into something that isn't real, but it's not really fake either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're looking at images, especially when they're colorizing them, the colors are meant for a reason. Like they're not usually just willy nilly is like, oh, I think I like green, but usually they're, they're trying to tell a story with that. But it is easy to think that everything looks that way if you haven't heard the story about how the images were created. I heard an interesting podcast or report once when Halley's Comet came by. They were showing some color pictures of it. And one of the news media said, boy, Halley's Comet is really colorful. It's got this red band around it and then a green band and a blue band and you know, red in the middle and so forth. And you know, basically this false color, but they didn't realize that it was. Unless you happen to have eyes that show all the color bands, right? <laughs> so I've always sort of wanted to be able to experience that for a moment, although I, to be able to see the whole electromagnetic spectrum at once, although I think I'd probably go crazy if, if I did, but it would be fascinating to be able to look at the world and not such the narrow band that we, we have to see. Yeah, well, the point of the, 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 the this kind of thing was that there was all the false color image, basically, and they thought it was real color. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, well, I guess just for me, like the main vision of NASA is exploring the secrets of the universe for the benefit of all. And what I love about that is that there's always more secrets to find. Like you uncover one secret and it's like, oh my goodness, there's 15 or 20 other secrets underneath of there. You know, you're looking underneath a rock and you see all the little bugs underneath there. That always seems to be more life elsewhere. And so for me, I've been able to see, you know, various rovers land on Mars. And one of the big things I've been fascinated by is finding the planets around other stars. And so when I first got to JPL, they'd only found, you know, a few hundred or something like that. And they didn't really know if there's going to be a whole lot more out there. But turns out that there's a lot of planets out there. And pretty much we, we think that perhaps every every star that you see out there has a solar system of, of some sort. And so just expanding the universe in, in that manner is, has been super fascinating to me. And actually, the very first project that I worked on when I got to JPL was trying to understand, they were saying, we're trying to find an Earth-like planet around another star. And I didn't come from a science background. I came from a graphic design background, and I hadn't really spent very much time around scientists or space science in, in specific. But, you know, I had seen sci-fi, and, and you see you always see a planet around another star, and that's where the people are living far, far away. And But to think about that being real, like, is that really real? I don't know. You know, it's an artist's conception, it's a movie, whatever. But then when they started to give me all these big numbers about how many stars there are in the galaxy and then how many galaxies there are. And I was like, oh, man, well, how there, there has to be life out there, right? There has to be other planets out there. And, and so the very first thing I did was I took a grain of sand and the space that they had found thousands of planets up until that point was about a tenth of the size of the Milky Way galaxy. And so I got this grain of sand that represented the Milky Way galaxy, and I had someone drill a hole with a carbide drill bit in the shop that happened to be a tenth of the size of the grain of sand into the grain of sand. And so under a magnifying glass, I'd have this single grain of sand that represents our Milky Way galaxy in this little teeny tiny area where we've found thousands and thousands of planets we're going to find tens of thousands more plants within that little tiny area, let alone the rest of the galaxy. And then at the time, you needed six roomfuls of sand to show all the other galaxies that we know about. And then after I'd been here eight years, all of a sudden, astronomers were like, well, you know, we're sort of off. Now it's 60 rooms full of sand that you need to be in. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I have to change my installation now. But it's actually more fascinating and more exciting. And that's what I love about this sort of endeavor is that there's just always something new and mind-blowing. doesn't get boring. Sounds like an incredible installation. Really makes you feel small. You know, the whole Milky Way, a grain of sand. Is that actually an installation that's uh, shown someplace or is that just... I've shown at different events around. And so, yes, yeah, so there would be a magnifying glass and then a bunch of sand. I, I've never gotten to do the full thing yet. I'd love to do that someday. Mixy room full of sand, that'd be good, yeah. Yeah, just blow you away with that. But you talked about being small and I hope that it actually does two things. And, and hopefully various visualizations of imparting information tell multiple stories. And one you could look at as being, well, we're incredibly insignificant. Look at all this space and all these things and how much else is out there and we're so small. But I also hope that you think about, well, this is the only, at this moment, this is the only Earth-like place that we have we have found. You know, Hopefully we'll find other Earth-like planets out there, but they're really hard to find. It's very special. And so what we have right now in our little thin blue layer of atmosphere that's going around our Earth is what's keeping us alive, 
right? And that's really, really special. And let's try not to throw it away. <laughs> that's a really good segue, speaking of exoplanets, to your Visions of the Future poster series. It's a very famous, gorgeous series of posters that are kind of advertisements for visiting these exoplanets. How did you develop those concepts? <laughs> well, first off, it's it's part of a big team. So uh, David Delgado was the person who sort of ran this project for the team. Joby Harris was the original illustrator and sort of did the first batch of them, set the tone for it all. But one might think, oh, people sat in a room and brainstorm this big concept that was going to go around everywhere. And, or you could know what the actual story is, which is a little bit more humble in that there was someone that was going to be coming to JPL and there was a hallway that was really kind of boring. And someone said, hey, could you like decorate the hallway for us, for this person who's coming? And we wanted to make it nice and, and chipper. And, and, <laughs> and it turned out that there's this, uh, this building that was pretty new and the architects had made these acrylic boxes for posters to go in front of the conference rooms. Nobody had ever put posters. In them. <laughs> and it was a few years down the road. And, you know, people just, I don't know what that thing's for. So anyways, Joby said, hey, how about we put posters up and down here? And, and the scientists were like, oh, that's great. Let's do images of our spacecraft. And I don't know if you look at spacecraft very often, but at some point they all sort of look the same. You can't really tell one thing from another, but it's really what they mean that's important, right? It's not as interesting as the tech is. It's what the tech is bringing us and allows us to understand that's important. And David Delgado is like, well, what if in the 30s and 40s there were these travel posters to places like Paris and Moscow and Madagascar? And if you were living in the United States at the time... Those places were impossibly far away, but they drew you, right? They called you. These posters were like, oh, man, I want to go to this place. I want to want to understand what this, these unique places are like. And so he suggested, why don't we think about these as, as travel posters? And, and then came up this idea of the Exoplanet Travel Bureau. So how do you get people to want to yearn for going to these exoplanets? And really, it's every single one of them what we did is we worked with scientists and we tried to find out, like, what is the one special thing? about this place that we can tell people about. And that's always hard because they want to tell five, six, 10, 20 different things, right? And anytime you're telling a story, I'm sure everyone who's done a visualization is trying to figure out, well, how many different elements am I trying to, how many different stories am I tr trying to tell? And we said one. <laughs> so, so one of them is Kepler-16b. Well, it's like Tatooine where there's Actually, it actually has two suns. And so what would it be like to live on a place with two suns? And so the headline is the, the land of two suns where your shadow always has company, right? And so we were, we're trying to be corny, right? That's a little bit of corny and, and everything. And then there's another one that 186F, I think, where the sunlight is different. So here, if you have trees and grass, everything's green, Right. But that's because of the light that's coming from our sun. Well, this sun is different than ours. And if it had trees and if it had grass, everything would be red. And so we played with that and said, you know, where the grass is always redder on the other side, you know, just kind of being funky and corny. But the illustrations were beautiful. And then there's a little bit of description about what it was. And, and yeah, so we really just kind of great about these posters is they showed NASA had a sense of humor. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that was funny because at the beginning, there was a lot of discussion. Well, can we be funny? You know, <laughs> can we can we do this? Can we is this OK? But it was only meant for this hallway. Right. 
And so what was funny about that whole story was that it ended up getting to the public. And at first it was sort of a no-no because nobody had told the right people about what was supposed to happen. But then after getting so many rave reviews, then it was a great thing. So <laughs> it was a great thing. It's like, thing a little like my experience too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, it, it was really beautiful to see. And then we ended up doing a whole big series of them. And yeah, it's been neat. I've been able to go around the world and wherever I go, there's somebody who happens to have them up on their wall, which is really cool to be, you know, in a different country and them say, oh, I have it up on my wall. And you can watch TV shows and they'll be up in the background. Or one of the things that's really fascinating that we did not plan for was that you can cut out the artwork and the NASA logo is not on it, right? And so it's public domain. And so people can use those things for anything, as long as they're not selling certain things. But there's there's certain sort of rules. And so people, they make puzzles out of them. They make tote bags, T-shirts, whatever. You can go online and find our artwork. And one of the funny things, I remember going to a, there was a flea market. And they have all the travel posters from the 20s and 30s sitting there. And then there's a little bin that says NASA travel posters. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I thought, oh, man, it came full circle right there. Sounds great. It's really about this this idea of sneaking up on learning, creating something beautiful, mysterious, something that just draws you in. And when you are drawn in and you're interested, you start to ask questions. And when you're asking questions, you are in a mindset for learning. So that wasn't our term. though. someone that had passed that on to us, but we live by it every day. That was the thing that inspired me was seeing some of the animated educational films done by Disney and by some other places like that, Man in Space and Mars and Beyond, made me want to kind of learn and and do more about that as well. That's the thing that the two of you have in common. You both created something new and visual and exciting that had never been done before at NASA, and people didn't really know how how to handle it, how to release it. You're both amazing game changers in that sense. Dan, another question for you. Another way that you describe yourself on your website is someone that does visual strategy for future NASA missions. What does that job entail? And how far into the future does that planning go? Yeah, so there are different teams here that are trying to imagine what future NASA missions will be. And you might imagine it like a a brainstorming session, right? And you get a bunch of people together. And it's really easy for any industry to think, oh, I have people from all these different, it's called a scientist, that's called an engineer, that's called this, called that, and think they think the same way or have the same knowledge base. And they don't, right? You know, like everyone's sort of specialized in certain areas and, and come from different backgrounds and bring to the table something different. And you need someone in the room to be able to notice when people are not thinking the same thing but they're all nodding. Yes, I think we are all saying the same thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in a room like that where you, you're you like, I don't think those two people think that they both understand the same thing in the same way. And someone needs to say something about it. And so we have various people on the team that are really good at facilitating workshops. And that's a whole art in of itself, being able to help a discussion still meander, but still get to an end point, right? And also there's different personalities. Some people talk a lot, right? And other people don't talk hardly at all, but their ideas are really important to bring to the table. And how do you bring those ideas to the table just in a, in a beautiful way, right? And and also many times you need something visual for people to see and to be able to say, ah, 
that's what you thought? Oh, I was thinking this, but I see this makes sense. And so many times there'll be someone drawing on the whiteboard and, and saying, well, is this what you're thinking about? Is that what you're thinking about? And I've kind of come to dislike the word, not dislike it, but when people say graphics, I think there is a sense these days, or at least in the worlds that, that I'm in, of like, not that it's trivial, but it's like, oh, I just need a graphic, right? I just need a graphic. But there's so much power in how you try to tell a story with one of these things that I've been trying to change the way we talk about it to like a thinking tool, right? Because a thinking tool is super powerful. And what I find is that when people are working on these really big, really far out there ideas, it's really hard. And you need an army of people to help you get from point A to point B. But it's not a point A to point B thing. People are kind of going, they're going one direction, then they're going to another direction, another direction. And they need help just thinking through all these complicated challenges that they have. And so when when we talk about helping people think through their thinking or visual strategy, it's less that we're going to solve any of their problems ourselves. Like, I'm not going to do the equation. I'm not going to do the physics. But the way we ask questions, the way that we think about what they're saying, hopefully makes them sort of think about what they're doing from a different perspective. And it's just like, you know, in any brainstorming group, you want to have people from lots of different backgrounds because you're going to get wildly, you don't want everyone to be thinking the same way. And so many people on our team are, are really good at this. And, and it's been neat because it, it really is anything from someone who is at the very, very, very beginning of thinking about a future mission that may not happen for 20, 30 years or 100 years <laughs> you know, or some sometime way off in the future to others that have challenges and issues at, at this moment. So I once saw a cartoon that was posted actually at JPL about early mission design and the scientists and the engineers talking back and forth and you know, say, what are your needs? And the other one's saying, what are your capabilities? And it was like this circle going around. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. in the egg. Kind of I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's always, always the thing about computer graphics, especially in the animation business, is the people who are contracting for it want a lot of stuff or something really elaborate. And the people who are actually doing it are trying to say, this is what's possible. And we have to match up those two things. It's, it's a really tricky thing to do. You know, it's the sociology of group projects. So speaking in terms of using computer graphics and visualization and visual techniques to communicate with the general public, how do computer graphics and visualization help us better understand the universe? Probably depends on how any particular person understands the universe. Different people think differently. I'm a very visual thinker, and so I have to put things into pictures. And in the past, it's been harder to make pictures. You look at books and they're all words. When I first started out publishing, it was a lot trickier to put the pictures in the thing than, than the words. And, but nowadays, it's, it's so easy to make pictures. It uh, makes it more, more fluid and more convenient and, and accessible for anybody who's not a computer graphics specialist to be able to pull in pictures and animate them and, and make them move around and show things. There's just you know, astonishing amounts of stuff on YouTube, for example, of you know, animations of mathematics and physics. And one of the things that I like is the fact that different people are making animations of the same subject. And I think that's a good way of learning a subject is not just trying to read the best book or the best picture, but seeing several different books and several different pictures, showing it from different ways of visualization. 
And so computer graphics has helped enormously in, in making those things are doable by the general public. Yeah, I totally agree on looking at the same subject matter from lots of different perspectives and how important that is. Because even something that's done poorly can give you something, a different perspective than something that's done beautifully. And so you need to be able to take both of those in. I, I have a hard time because when I see something done poorly, I, I sort of write it off. But I, I need to force myself not to do that because there might be something there that, that I'm missing. Or what if they just twisted it a little bit this way and, and it would tell a different well, that's, story? That's a good part of it. If you see something done poorly, you can say, oh, I think I yeah. can do it better. <laughs> this, this inspires me yeah. to figure out the better way of doing it. Yeah. I personally am not all that great at computer graphics necessarily, but I've been really fascinated with just the idea of experiencing data. So there's the visual aspect, but then what are the other aspects? Can you listen? Can you feel? Can you smell? What are these different ways in which we can experience data? And and so that's probably an area that I've, or like how hyper-realistic is it versus how abstract is it? And what do you garner from each of those, right? And sometimes you play with this dial of one way or the other, and sometimes it's better for different audiences or just different ways of learning. Yeah, that's one of the things that my assistant at the time, Sylvia Ruff, used to say about how we're trying to show things that are really big and really small at the same time and really fast and really slow at the same time and to compress it down so you can kind of compare them the proper way without distorting people's view of what's going on. You see a lot of diagrams of saying, you know, the moon going around the Earth. And the Earth is an inch across, and the moon is, is a half an inch across, and they're six inches apart in the diagram, which is vastly different than what's going on. <laughs> uh, and in fact, you know, even in doing the computer graphics, one of the problems having was you're sitting a couple of meters away from the spacecraft point of view, and there's a moon that's several thousand kilometers away, and there's a Jupiter, which is several tens of thousands of kilometers away. The vast difference between the size of these things and their distances numerically makes it tricky to do on a computer because you, know, you get round off error and so forth. So it affects how you have to make the algorithm so that you can show some so stars that are long distance away and, and planets that are on a medium distance away and the spacecraft that's really quite close to you all in the same coordinate system. That's a great point. And another place that you often see astronomy exaggerated is in pop culture. Science fiction, novels, movies, you know, space travel and space exploration are topics that you often see. From your expert opinions, what does fiction get right about its predictions and possibilities? Well, different fiction is different amounts of accuracy, and it's very difficult to find a science fiction movie about interplanetary adventures that doesn't include faster-than-light travel. And that, to me, is not science fiction. That's, you know, fantasy, at least a current understanding of physics. You know, you just don't go faster than light, sorry. You just don't get to do that. But it makes it less interesting if you're having to spend thousands of years getting only to the nearest star <laughs> without, you know, weird things like hibernation or whatnot, and whether that even would work for a thousand years. So there are a few authors who do pretty well. I think the guy's name, the guy who wrote The Martian, he's pretty good about taking the stuff of reality, the trade-offs and, and what's possible uh, pretty much accurately. But a lot of the stuff that you see in, in science fiction is, stuff from the old days brought into the modern. For example, Star Trek is going out and, and we're an emissary to the other planets and the captain of the Enterprise has to have authority to speak on behalf of Earth in order to interact with them. 
And that's kind of an analogy of uh, back in the 18 and 1700s when sailing ships were sailing around the world and the communication between the ship and the home country was virtually non-existent. So they had to make the, sh the ship captains be able to speak on the part of the government. So a lot of science fiction is just transplanting that long distance communication difficulties into more modern things. Well, first off, I'm not a physicist. Sometimes I wouldn't know if it was wrong or, or right, but you know, you can have something totally right and totally boring and something totally wrong and totally exhilarating and life-changing. And, and so the purpose of movies is not necessarily always to be right, but to entertain you for some periods of time. But it is great when you have people conjecturing and, and thinking. I think that's what science fiction does well. Is that it makes you think a little bit differently. It's like, huh, I wonder if that could be true. I wonder, you know, I wonder how that would be. And and ultimately, I think the best ones are the ones that really tell us about ourselves. And science fiction is a great medium to be able to do that because it's not of this moment. It's sometime out in the future. But just going back to Star Trek, you know, they, they could talk about all sorts of things that they wouldn't have been able to do in like a normal comedy set in the day of, right? Because they could talk about race. They could talk about various kinds of international relations and stuff and in in ways that were maybe not dead on, but talking about science fiction allowed them to do that. Yeah, so, exactly. It enables you to sort of disguise the difficulties uh, by uh, making it more abstract and more different from real life. I used to like to watch The Twilight Zone a lot when I grew up and it showed people in very difficult circumstances. And there was another series called Black Mirror, which is more recently done that's supposed to be similar to trying Twilight Zone. And I found that difficult to watch because the bad things that happen to people in Black Mirror are too real. Too <laughs> yeah, much, exactly. Too right? imminent. This is actually what's going to happen in a couple of years. <laughs> Whereas the ones in the Twilight Zone where, you know, bad things happen because the space aliens are coming down or a few other things that are sufficiently different from being real that you can detach yourself a bit rather than being totally freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> you know too much. Yeah. Well, one of the things that seems like maybe it is close to being real someday would be traveling to the moon or Mars. Jim, you said that, you know, traveling across galaxies will never be possible due to speed of light. But do you think some of our closer planetary neighbors could be feasible to travel to? Well, we can get to the moon. We've done that and we're kind of in the process of doing it again. And that's possible. I haven't studied the details of it, but I think it's certainly a lot easier now than before. The more you learn about the Apollo spacecraft, the more amazing it is that you know, they were able to get it to work. And nowadays, computers are so much faster and so forth. So that aspect of it will be really easy. Getting to Mars is probably a lot harder than people think it is in terms of human beings getting there. And we've sent a lot of probes to Mars. And I think the unmanned probes have a success rate of, what, 50, 75 percent, something like that. And that's, you know, even about people on board and getting to Mars with people is maybe a fun thing to try. And building a society in Mars is, you know, just a lot harder than people think it's going to be. And whether it's worth the expense and, and the effort and then, you know, people are going to die in the process of doing this, I expect. So it's going to be a lot longer, if ever, that we're going to be able to do that, I think. But there's also something to be said about giving an impossibly hard task to strive for. That's what I've always liked about JPL. I, I tend to say that we do what's on the edge of possibility. And if you step over that edge, just even like a millimeter, then you crash and burn, right? And if you're too far away from that edge, then 
is boring or it's it's something that commercial people can do and let someone else do it. And so it's always like, well, what is that edge and what is that edge? And and Mars probably is like that fine edge of like, can this really happen? You know, can we really do that? Because there's, there's a lot of challenges, but it also gives young people a great opportunity to have a vision and, and dream of. And if it does happen, then it's like, it's a mark in human history, right? And for me, like just personally, like my dream is maybe less about humans going somewhere, but there are all these moons of other planets that have these giant oceans under an ice shell. And so Europa is one of those, Enceladus is another one. And Europa, they think there's twice as much water underneath of this shell, ice shell, than there is on Earth. You know, and this is a moon that's uh, much smaller than Earth that's around Jupiter. And so my dream is someday that there's going to be a submarine that goes down there. And hopefully there's going to be something swimming around (laughs) to look at. I think that would just be mind blowing and super exciting and seeing an ocean that hasn't seen light for a long, long, long time. But there's heat. The unmanned missions that JPL does are, I think, a richer source of fun things because they can send stuff out lots of places a lot easier and get back a lot more new data than if they had to wait until a human being could go out there and look at it. So I'm all a big, big fan of uh, robot probes going on. Can you talk about the edge of possibility? Let's talk about that. Can each of you share what you think the future of NASA astronomy space travel looks like in the next 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years? Well, 10 years is easier to speculate about, and and probably things are already in the process of being designed now that will be happening in 10 years. So I haven't kept up to date with what uh, people in the back rooms of JPL are speculating on. Maybe Dan can can talk about that more than I could. 100 years out, things are going to be really kind of dicey for the human race, I have a feeling, with the various difficulties that we're having. So I'm not too hopeful about that. A thousand years from now, we're all going to be replaced by AI robots walking around on the earth. So you know, maybe it wouldn't matter what we're doing now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, all, all this is just my own thoughts and opinions. I wouldn't go to a NASA website to go look it up. But outside of, yeah, I mean, going to the moon, that's the big thing right now is humans going to the moon and setting up base and seeing how we can use that as a resource for going further out into space, hopefully to Mars. 100 years, I mean, that that's really where I'm hoping that before I die, which would hopefully be in like 50 years or so, that that's where we get to go look at an ocean underneath of Enceladus or, or Europa or something like that. And I'm hoping for that too. Yeah. A thousand years, I guess what's so, what I love is that like thinking 100 years ago, you couldn't imagine, or it's it's hard to imagine the world that we live in. And that was only 100 years ago. And so a 1,000 years ago, I think what Jim's right, like life has the real potential of being really hard for a lot of people on, on Earth. But let's assume that we make it through that somehow, that it's going to be such an unimaginable world that we're sort of like cave people right now <laughs> and, and imagining cave people imagining what's happening right now. So um, I would love to be able to get a glimpse of that future or, or to be there and, and look back and say, oh, I remember when we were sitting around doing these things. and Look at what we're doing now. Jim and Dan, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise with the SIGGRAPH community. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I, I hope to see you both in Los Angeles for SIGGRAPH 2023. 
What a fascinating discussion. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in Los Angeles for SIGGRAPH 2023. Until next time.